What would you do if you were given $500 to invest? When Jed turned 16, my buddy Josh pledged to give Jed $500 to invest into the stock market. What would you do with such a gift? Would you buy a bunch of dropping stocks like Peloton? Now, what's scary about both? I'm not much of a risk taker when it comes to things like this. Investing in a startup or collecting real estate or playing the market all involve a certain amount of risk. There is potential for much loss. Now, what if the number wasn't $500? What if the number was a lifetime worth of money? We could attempt to put a dollar figure on the amount Jesus is talking about here, $1 million, $10 million, $100 million, a billion. How would you invest that? Does it? There does seem to be a bankroll from which you can then invest and invest and invest, even if you experience loss. But the fear remains real. I remember one time uh, when I worked as a, a, I parked cars. I was a valet during seminary. And uh, I would work some of these baller parties in Dallas. And um, if you were a valet and you got a $10 tip or a $20 tip, like, like that was the stuff, right? But lots of times it was $2 tips. And one time I parked Ross Perot's car. Now, you might, may or may not remember Ross Perot, but he was a multi-multi, he was, he was a billionaire. There is loss and risk, no matter how much money you might have. As we come to the parable, the master gives And the master gives a lifetime of wages to each of the servants. Even the servant who receives one talent, that one talent equates to a lifetime of wages. And the one who receives five, five lifetimes. Two, two lifetimes. And the baseline for our parable this morning is the generosity of the master. Now hold that thought a second because I think the peril of the talents often gets uh, Aesop's fable treatment and humiliation or the laurels of being a good steward. Now, part of the problem is language. Talents in our text become something about our talent, our gifts, our abilities. Those two words don't actually equate in the text of the Bible, but we read that and that's naturally what we think. And so we make this text about our talents and abilities given to us by God, and then leveraged for the kingdom. But talent here isn't our abilities. It's gift. Talent is life-changing wealth. It's winning the lottery. The master here is prodigal. That word is usually associated with being on a lavish scale. The master in our parable gives lavishly. And what is the greatest gift you have been given? Think about that for a second. If you were to go, as we near up on Christmas time and the giving and exchanging of gifts, what, don't say Jesus, like I know, yes, greatest gift. What is the greatest gift you've ever been given by somebody? What was the most extravagant gift? The master here, gives away eight lifetimes of wealth to three servants. Not his earth-born children, children. 
It would be more plausible, perhaps, but to a servant? The, the parable isn't about our talents or gifts, first and foremost, but about the seemingly wasteful giving of the master. Annie Dillard is a writer. She wrote a book called A Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. She touches on this in a beautiful way. She says, at the time of Lewis and Clark, setting the prairies on fire was a well-known signal that meant come down to the water. It was an extravagant gesture, but we can't do less. If the landscape reveals one certainty, it is that the extravagant gesture is the extravagances, flinging intricacies and colossi down aeons of emptiness, heaping profusions on profligacies with ever-fresh vigor. The whole show has been on fire from the world go. I come down to the water to cool my eyes, but everywhere I look, I see fire. And that which isn't flint is tinder, and the whole world sparks and flames. Jesus is showing us in this parable the God of great expenditure, who is nothing if not prodigal towards us, his children. Now, Jesus here is, remember, nearing the end of his ministry in Matthew 25, and he's driving home one last point. What is his kingdom like? And we can't rightly understand what Jesus is saying to us in the parable of the talents if we don't understand the parable as the parable of a prodigal God and his prodigal kingdom. And it doesn't stop there. The master isn't just extravagant and generous, almost wasteful. He's also thoughtful and kind. In verse 15, Jesus says, He gives to each servant according to their abilities. His prodigal gifts are applied with precision and kindness. He, he knows what they're capable of dealing with. He, he knows if they have children at home who struggle with various health issues. He knows if they live alone. He, he knows if their spouse is sick. He knows if they are living paycheck to paycheck. He knows. And then he gives. See, press, the Lord knows you. He knows you. He knows your frame. As the psalmist says, he, he knows that you are dust, that you are human, flesh and bone. The wonder of the incarnation is bound up in God's immense prodig prodigality. He knows and he enters in. And he gets to the two servants, enter into what? The joy of your master. Joy is unbound happiness. Happiness beyond circumstance. The master gives, at least in part, because he's full of joy. And the response of faith to such a gift is joy. The joyful master gives out of the boundless joy that he has to his servants who bet on a graceful, kind gift, and they are welcomed into what? Joy. Which will enable them to give beyond circumstance, inviting others into such joy. Now, the first two servants enter into it and stand out. What are testimonies of what grace can do when we believe and trust in a God who is gracious? My buddy Casey shared this story. In the 6th century, there was an abbot named Columba who left his native Ireland with 12 men on mission to bring the good news of Jesus to the Picts, another people group in another part of Scotland. 
by God's grace, they were successful. And Columba and his missionaries would eventually go on to found an abbey on the small island of Scotland called Iona, which would eventually become this vibrant center of literacy and faith that continued for centuries. Iona Gales, coached by another elder, Patino. Now, as the story goes, and it almost feels kind of apocalyptic, shortly after reaching Scotland in his animal hide-wrapped wicker boat, Columba evidently did something drastic. He knew he and his companions were going to face incredibly uncomfortable circumstances and unrelenting dangerous work. And so to completely remove the temptation to give up and leave and abandon their work of the gospel, the story goes that they burned their boat. Now this parable is about enormous, what fully, on that grace. Can we, City Prez, burn our boats and trust that God's lavish, generous grace is enough. Now, the first servant trusts in the master's goodness and doubles the gift of wealth. The other servant doubles his as well, trusting in the goodness of the master and his gift for lifetimes of wealth is the result. And again, the emphasis is on the secure universe of a giving master. What enables these two servants to well, he doesn't stand out as one who did something wrong, but something, someone who did nothing at all. Now, let's tiptoe here a bit because I think there's real tension. He's judged by the master. Why? But because he chose out of fear to be calculative and risk-averse. Now, what was he afraid of? Not losing at all. He's afraid of what? The master. Master, I I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow. Gathering where you scattered no seed. Master. He fears because he assumes the giver had given a gift that could only be lost or used up. He didn't understand that he had already been invited into the master's joy just by possessing the gift. He was already in good standing with the master because he didn't earn the talent. He shouldn't fear losing the talent, but because of such kindness and generosity in the master, live a life of faith, not fear. Faith not in the results, by the way, of that faith. Faith not in some return on that faith, but faith in the kindness and the joy and the lavishness of the maximum gain. Now, this is how many of us, if we're honest, think of God and how God works. And this is a lie from the enemy. The thought that God isn't full of love, compassion, kindness, overwhelming generosity. The thought that maybe even our world is more loving than God, more understanding, more kind, more generous. We live in a, the water we swim in is a world that is surveillancing our every move, ready to 
punish us at a moment's notice when exactly that is the zero-sum game of our world, right? We, we live in a world obsessed with making sure everything balances out, which means most of us stumble over the working of such boundless grace. If you transgress the world, it's not going to forgive you. It might counsel you or shame you or forget you. It will make you feel like an outsider. It will label you as unclean. But in the kingdom of the kind and thoughtful master, God will die for you. He will give in such a way that the grace of his giving seems like a scandal. What what do you mean you're forgiving them? What do you mean you're giving them that? What do you mean you're going there to that place, to that country, to that danger? The world doesn't understand giving in such a way. We, we assume there is a grift involved with God, an agenda, an angle. And this is what the servant believed. He feared losing what he had been given because he believed that the relationship with the, with the master not so. In other words, taking from all the investments, including the investments he did not make. He assumed him to be an overlord and a thief, a master who gives in order to take. We live like God is the dropper. Now, I talked about the dropper a couple weeks ago, but Deacon's least favorite ride at Disneyland was the dropper. It's the Tower of Terror. And there is something about sitting in that ride and the lights go off, and, the, and then you're just waiting for the drop, right? And many of us live that way with God. So I need to hedge my bets. I need to keep a dinghy tied to the line, hidden on the island of our hearts. He does not know the master, so he can't understand his grace. And the result of that is why he tried to turn the gift of grace into a possession to be buried and hoarded rather than something to be invested and spent. He doesn't get grace. The master says, I would have accepted anything, even the bottom level investment in a bank. If you thought I was a hard man, why didn't you at least do that? He th- the bookkeeper in this parable is the servant. And he fears a non-existent audit. Maybe that's you. Thinking God is grading you. God is that harsh father whom you can never live up to their expectation. He's the miserly boss who only gives you bonuses based on merit. And so to burn your ships on such a God would be foolish. I got to protect myself. And this is ultimately what's condemned. The bookkeeping and the fear in a ghost of a God. The talent of grace, unfaith, buries in expectations. Heaps and heaps and heaps of expectations. That faith produces results. But what if the Lord throws his money around? What if God really is prodigal? What if he throws parties for prodigals? 
prodigals who burn their ships on such a God. The unfaithful servant and the older brother and another of Jesus' parables believe in the same kind of God, a God who has limited resources, a God who isn't wastefully generous, a God who doesn't have a fattened calf for me, a God who gives the wine in the rich servant, refuses to trust the good thing for the good thing it is. He refuses to believe grace is that good. He thinks it must be protected and leveraged rather than freely invested. Capon, uh, the commentator, says, we spend our lives invoking upon ourselves imagined necessities, creating God in the image of our own fears. And all the while, he's beating us over the head with the balloon of grace. Keller shares a story in The Prodigal God about a woman whom he's counseling and talking with. I asked her what was so scary about unmarried to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. Hear that, friends. Because I think that often describes my heart with God. If it's really true that I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. And doesn't this describe the third servant? He doesn't want to be put in such a place. Pack sort of faith. It's either burn the ships or it's leveraging. And that hits us. If you've not grasp the gospel of free grace fully and deeply, you will return to being cynical, condescending, condemning, anxious, insecure, joyless, and angry. People who are no longer sure that God loves or accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure people. And that in defensive criticism of others. You see, a servant works out of fear, normally, out of fear, fear of consequences imposed by the force that's in power that's over them. And this gets to the root of what drives the third servant and the elder brother. Ultimately, third servants and elder brothers live good lives out of fear, not out of joy and love. But if, when you have lost all fear of punishment, you have also lost incentive to live an obedient life, then what was your motivation in the first place? What is your motivation, friends, to give, to love? Is it Jesus went into the far country to die for our sins? If the Father did not even spare his own Son for us, then how will he not freely give us all things? Jesus is the absent master who has called us to share in his business of proclaiming the extravagant grace of forgiveness of sins in a world who's dying for the lack of it. And his invitation is to go all the way with his grace, to repent, to believe, to burn your boat, and bet your house on that grace. As Frederick Buechner says, in the end, There are two kinds of fools in the world, damned fools, and what Paul says, 
first two servants took is to come all the way in and become a fool who with Jesus graces a graceless world. Now Chelsea Warren shared this quote with me. It's written by Justin Holcomb. It says, Undeserved acceptance is the operating principle of grace. It somehow changes guilt into assurance and makes beauty out of ugly things. It, it strikes us when we are weak, not strong. It meets us in pain and restlessness. It meets us when we feel our exclusion is deeper than usual, when our disgust at our exclusion has made us intolerable company. It meets us. Fair destroys joy and courage. And let me stop right there because as we read this, we're tempted to already start leveling our butts at such a thing. Now, Deacon would laugh when I said that. But, but what do you mean? What, what about this? And what about that? You see, grace has the uncanny ability to accept our most unacceptable moments. In these darknesses, God says, because of Jesus and Jesus alone, you are accepted. You belong to me. You, you don't need to try by a generous God. Don't, don't try to secure and manage the gift of new life you've been given. If you're afraid to better grace this morning, see anew your master today. A master who went on his long journey for you, left everything for you, risked everything for you by, going, by becoming a human and going to a cross and bearing your sin. And he has buried your sin, by the way. It's sealed up in the tomb, dead and buried, never to be brought up again by God. And this is the joy that you're invited into. And he calls us to repent, believe, burn the ships driving here. As I often do, I kind of try to listen to some kind of song that reminds me about what I'm about to preach on. And I was brought to this, I mean, this is the second Stephen Curtis Chapman reference in about six weeks. Forgive me. And if you don't know who he is, he used to be this like really popular Christian artist. He wrote this song called Burn the Ships. And, and I, as I listened to it on the way down here, I just started weeping. Because I, I would listen to this song in college at a time where I was just like freaking trying to figure it out, man. Trying to understand. He sings, burn the ships, we're here to stay. There's no way we could go back now that we've come this far by faith. Burn the ships, we've passed the point of no return. Our life is here, so let the ships burn and burn. In the spring of new beginnings, a searching heart sets sail, looking for a new life and a love that would not fail. I felt that described me at that time. On the shores of grace and mercy, we landed with great joy. But an enemy was waiting to steal, kill. But the one who led us here is saying, burn the ships. We're here to stay. There's no way we could go back now that we've come this far by faith. I sat there and thought, man... That was, uh, 
30 years ago. My kids are in that stage of life. And I thought, man, God is so dang faithful and so generous because I I have wanted not to burn my ships. And I've wanted to go back so many times, and yet God continues to beckon and stir. And out of that, come to this table and receive from the Lord what you could not earn. And receive it with joy, because he is welcoming you to the joy of the master. And then also, I want you to only participate in the Christmas offering, building committee campaign, out of that place of a generous master, not a tyrant, not leveraging somehow that if you give this talent, so you can give. And that also means those impossible prayer requests like to bank and hope on God and voice things that you don't want to voice. Pray again what you've been praying. Share the impossibility of what you feel right now in your life and be vulnerable. To burn the ships, friends, and bank on such a God. We do so not out of fear of the master that he's a hard man, but that he's prodigal, frolicking about in the world, decked in mercy and grace, sharing boundless love with all who believe. Let's pray. There are gifts and prayer requests, whether online or here in person. I love it. So I pray, God, that today you would just remind us of the kind of master you are for us, a lover and a friend, and one that gives to us over and over again, extravagantly, even in our failures. Help us not to bury your gift of grace, but to live a life of faith. To live a life of faith. To unbury what you've given us and to live a life of faith. Help us, Jesus.